0: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ومولانا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah, this is our session of Ask the Imam for September of 2023. And we have, I think, five questions. The first question says Assalamu alaikum, can you please explain ayah 2 of Surah Al-Fatih. What does it mean by لِيَغْفِرَ and Thambak? while we know that the prophets are ma'asum, they're protected from error. And what does لِيَهْدِيَكَ صِرَاطًا mustaqima" mean here while they are already on the straight path? Is it nur ala nur? So this question is essentially about the tafsir of the verse in Suratul fatih where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allahu ma min wa ma And the tafsir of this verse is actually quite detailed. Let's go to the beginning and look at the first verse and then this second verse. This is in the beginning of Suratul fatih Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ba'da a'udhu بسم الله Rahim الرحيم fatahna فَتَحْنَا لَكَ فَتْحًا مُبِينًا لِيَغْفِرَ لَكَ اللَّهُ مَا تَقَدَّمَ مِن ذَنْ بِكَ وَمَا تَأَخْخَرُ Allah Ta'ala says in a literal translation Indeed or certainly we have given you a manifest victory, a clear victory. That's verse number one. The second verse is translated literally as that Allah may forgive you your past and future sins. So the questioner is asking how do we interpret this verse when we know as a foundation of our beliefs that the prophets and messengers are granted usma, divine protection from sins and errors. How do we reconcile that principle or how do we understand this verse in light of that principle? And we always highlight this over and over again, that we understand the unclear verses in light of the clear foundational principles. This is what the ulama call, mutashabihat ila ilal muhkamat," Referring the unclear verses to the foundational clear-cut unequivocal verses. So, as I just told you, a literal translation of this verse would read that Allah may forgive you your past and future sins. However, I want you to consider that it can also be translated in a slightly different way. You could also translate this verse by saying, certainly we have given you a manifest victory that Allah may forgive by means of you the sins of those who came before and the sins of those who are to come. Now that interpretation of the verse in Arabic would render this translation, right? So let's look at this a little bit. When we go into our works of Tefasir we see independent books of tafsir and then we see rasail we see different smaller books that address the tafsir of specific verses one such work is by al imam as-Suyuti rahimahullah ta'ala he has a risala a small work called al qawl muharrar ala qawlihi ta'ala li Allahu lak allah ma taqaddama min dhanbika wa ma taakhar. it's a rhyming title And this is basically a small essay he wrote where he presented the dozen or so views about this verse in the various works of Tafsir. So he presents them one by one, who said it and how they expressed it. And after he presents the 12 or so different interpretations about what it means, he says that after presenting a dozen of them, he says all of these, are unacceptable وضعيف, between something that is rejected and something that is weak. Meaning it's not it's not that bad, but it's not really an acceptable way to interpret it. Uh, he settles on a view at the end of this, and that is the view of Al-Imam as-subki ta'ala. Imam Al-Subki is quoted by Imam suyuti in this Salah, saying, I have contemplated what has been said concerning this verse and I found that the verse only carries one possible meaning. It is a tashrif, it is an ennobling of the Prophet without there being any sin in the first place. However, Allah wanted to encompass all of the blessings that he showered on his servant of the blessings of this world and the blessings in the next, including seemingly negative things like forgiveness of sins. He says, Imam al-Subki, some of the ulama have said that maghfira, which we translate as forgiveness, is a kinaya, meaning it's a metonym for usmah meaning it is a figure that in, indicates usmah protection from sin he says it would therefore mean that allah may cover you from any past or future sins because when you say ghafara right ghufran ghafar is to cover is to wrap up is to envelop right so when you say as a ordinary muslim astaghfirullah I seek the forgiveness of Allah. You're asking Allah Ta'ala to cover that sin, to conceal that sin, to envelop it in forgiveness and pardon and remove its effect. So he is saying here that the forgiveness here is not a forgiveness of an actual sin that we call a contravention of a divine command or violating a divine prohibition. He is saying it is being enveloped in protection from past and future sins so this is what al-imam As-Suyuti says uh, is for in his opinion the most reasonable view and the soundest view of the dozen or so views that have been mentioned in the books of tafsir but there's more Uh, there's more that's been said by the ulama one of the points made by some of the scholars is that when you read the quran you have to pay very close attention to the, the manner of address How Allah Ta'ala Addresses the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi And that is because There are several verses of the Quran Where Allah Ta'ala Is Although he is addressing The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi He is actually addressing The Ummah So the, the Khitab The Divine Address Is directed towards the Ummah but the manner of speech is directly addressing the Prophet sallallahu alaihi For example, a very clear one. When Allah wa ta'ala says, right? When he says, "And purify your garments and shun idol worship." Did the Prophet sallallahu ever come near to idol worship? Never. This, the ulama say, is Allah addressing the Prophet sallallahu but intending by an address to the ummah. And there are other examples of this. For example, in Surah Yunus, we find another verse. Allah Ta'ala says, فَإِن He says, subhanahu wa ta'ala, so if you are in doubt Concerning what we have revealed to you, inquire from those who recite the scripture before you. So the question is, was the Prophet ﷺ ever in doubt? Did he ever suffer doubt? Never. Oh, he is exalted and beyond having any doubt. Yet there are many verses in the Qur'an where Allah Ta'ala addresses the Prophet ﷺ like this. And the ulama of tafsir say it is actually addressing the ummah. He's never in doubt about the Qur'an. So this is about his people, about his ummah. And by ummah here, it doesn't just mean the Muslims. It means ummah al-da'wah and ummah al-ijabah, both communities. Those who have uh, accepted the call to Islam and those of his ummah, meaning of humanity, who are still receiving the invite to Islam. So Allah Ta'ala is addressing humanity. Anybody who would have doubt, if you are in doubt concerning what Allah has revealed to Him, then inquire from those who recite the Scripture before before Him. We find another example of this too, in Surah Zumar. In Surah Zumar, Allah Taala also addresses the Prophet sallallahu and says, This is even clearer. Allah Ta'ala says, if you, He's addressing the Prophet if you ascribe partners unto Allah, your deeds will surely come to naught. They'll be wasted. And you will be among the losers. So here Allah Ta'ala is addressing the Prophet is it possible that he could ever fall into shirk? a'udhu billah. Of course not So this is an address to humanity Although the actual khitab Linguistically it is of course to the Prophet Wasallam. Now, going back to the verse in Surah Al-Fatih Allah subhanahu wa Taala says Wa Ma and here you find the particle of lamb. The, the, the particle lamb. Uh, and here the scholars say it is the lamb of the operative cause. This is how you translate it as that or in order that or so that. This is the illa. This is the operative cause for the forgiveness. Uh, for the or the opening, you get the forgiveness. So this is actually conveying to us that the forgiveness after or the, the conquest of Mecca brings, as a result, forgiveness to the ummah. How so? You read the verse in the Arabic, it doesn't address the ummah directly. So how does it mean the ummah in general? Well, to understand this, we have to look at a little bit of the Arabic and the structure of the Arabic language. And this is, it's kind of hard to explain this in English if a person doesn't have a background in Arabic grammar. But I'll try to make it as simple as possible. You have nouns and you have verbs, right? In Arabic, you have nouns, verbs and particles. So, verbs are actions right? They're words that describe actions, but they're also describing the time in which they were done and the one who did it. So when you say thehaba, right? What does that mean? Who knows what it means? Thehaba. He left or he went. So in that verb, you have three actual meanings embedded in it. You have the actual meaning of the action, you know, to go. You have the time in which it was done, that's the past, and then you have the identity of the one doing it, right? And that's the pronoun. the ذهب. So that's embedded in the verb. Whereas a noun uh, doesn't have a link to a particular person or a particular time, right? So in Arabic, you have verbs and you have nouns. And one of the types of nouns we have are called verbal nouns or mustar. So what's a mustar? A mustar is a noun that describes the meaning of a particular action. So if I say, the habun, the habun is the noun that describes the act of going. It's not a verb. It's not identifying who went. It's not identifying when they went. It's just the word, the noun, that describes that action. Does that make sense? So, here in Arabic, sometimes in the Qur'an, these verbal nouns refer either to the person who did that action, or it refers to the one who was the object of that action, right? And this is still does not it's not perfectly clear just yet, but I'll show you from the Qur'an. In the Qur'an, we have in uh, one verse in Surah al shura Allah Ta'ala says, وَلَمَنِ ينتصر بَعْضَ ظُلْمِهِ مَا عَلَيْهِمْ مِنْ سَبِيلٍ And whoever defends himself after his oppression, for such there is no blame against them. And whoever defends himself after his oppression, بعد So the word ظلم here It's a verbal noun So my question to all of you is When Allah Ta'ala says this Whoever defends himself after his oppression Does it mean the oppression that he did to someone else? Or does it mean his oppression refer to The oppression that he was the victim of He was the object of that oppression Clearly it's the latter. That's what Allah Ta'ala is saying. Whoever defends himself after he is oppressed by someone else or by others. For such, there is no blame on them. Right? So this in Arabic is a mustar, verbal noun. Allah Ta'ala ascribes it to the person. But is Allah Ta'ala ascribing it to the person because it was their action or because they are the object of that action? It is because they are the object of the action. Whoever defends himself, after his oppression, يعني, after he is oppressed by someone else. This is how some of the ulama have interpreted the verse in Suratul fatr Because the word themb is also a verbal noun. And it is ascribed to the Prophet So when you read the verse, <laughs> That Allah may forgive your themb in the from the past and the future. Does that mean the sin that he did, or could it also or could it mean the sin that was done against him, where he is the one receiving? People are sinning against him in their behavior. This is one possible interpretation. And if you interpret it that way, then the meaning of the verse would be in connection to the conquest of Mecca fatahna فَتَحْنَا لَكَ al-mubina." فتح Certainly we granted you a manifest victory, right? So Allah Ta'ala gave the victory to Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam He entered Mecca victoriously People entered into Islam in droves, in throngs, right? Even his opponents, right? Then Allah Ta'ala says, as an operative cause, In order that Allah may forgive the sins that were done against you in the past and the sins that were done, are done, that are done in the future. So this is one interpretation. This is mentioned by uh, Sheikh Muhammad Abdul Ba'ath al-Kattani. Uh, in one of his works on tafsir of these kinds of verses He says this is linguistically possible Because the verbal noun can go either way It can either refer to the fa'il As the doer of the action Or it could refer to that one as the maf'ul The object of that action So this is one way of interpreting the verse Where Allah Ta'ala is not affirming uh, sins To the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam That are therefore forgiven but this is one interpretation, and then Imam Subki has another interpretation, and before Imam Subki, there's a dozen others that Imam Suyuti mentions. Some are uh, far-fetched and weak; others are—they're very sound attempts to explain it in a way that preserves the sanctity of the Prophet ﷺ. But they don't inspire a great deal of confidence, right? That sometimes happens you know, the scholar is making his best attempt and you read it and, you know, it doesn't really, doesn't really hit you in the heart. It doesn't seem to be the most reasonable, most likely interpretation. And one could also argue that that's the same for the position of Sheikh Muhammad Abdul Ba'ath Kattani, that looking at the Masar as referring to the doer versus the object, it's maybe a bit far-fetched, but whatever interpretation is given, as long as it is maintaining the foundation of usma, then inshaAllah they make their best attempts in their ijtihad. Uh, another way of looking at it, and this is the position of Shaykh Abdul Ghani and Nabulusi, he mentions in Asrar Sharia that all of these terms, like themb, we translate into English as sin. And when those words are applied to uh, ordinary human beings, they mean certain things, like contraventions of sharia. But when these words are ascribed to the prophets, they mean something completely different, and they are by, beyond the purview of ordinary human beings. Yeah, Allah knows. So that is more of an off-hands approach of saying, a'lam bil-murad. Allah knows best what He intends by that ascription. Except that we know it's not an actual sin. That is the view of a Shaykh Abdul Ghani and rahimahullah taala. So. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wa rasuluhu a'lam. Uh, the next question. Now we're, we're going from tafsir into something else completely different. This question says. Is it allowed for parents to go through their children's phones? Is it an invasion of privacy? Or it says, it is an invasion of privacy, and someone once told me it is a sin to read someone's personal diary, and going through a phone is about the same. If not, it is the same as eavesdropping on a conversation, conversation, so surely it must be haram. You know this question is actually a tough one, because, in principle, it is impermissible for a Muslim to spy on others. That is the default. In principle, it is haram for us to spy on other people and to pry into their personal matters. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says in the Quran, "Ya amanu, min inna ithm, Oh, you who believe. Avoid much of suspicion, for indeed some suspicion is sin. تجسسوا, and do not spy. That is our foundation here. That spying is by default haram, and it is only permissible in certain circumstances. So what may those circumstances be? The general rule is that if the parent knows that the children are engaging in illicit behaviors, in forbidden relationships, are engaged in harmful practices such as drugs or self-harm, and they have a reasonable certainty that that is happening based on past experiences or other circumstantial evidence that gives them reasonable certainty, then they would have the right in those circumstances to investigate to see in order to prevent a greater harm from occurring. So the default is no, but there are situations where it could be permissible. Now the ulama say that the parents, vis-a-vis their children, stand in the role of Ahlul Hisbah. Who are the Ahlul Hisbah? These are the people appointed by the Islamic authority to monitor the marketplace, to monitor public life and ensure that there are no open, flagrant violations of Islamic norms and behaviors. So the Ahlul Hizbah are given certain authorities in order to curtail and prevent anything being done in public that are violations of Islamic norms, right? So the ulama say that the parents over the child are in many ways like Ahlul Hizbah in that they are vested with certain authority over those children that others do not have, right? So the general rule applies that you don't go prying into people's phones, not your children's, you don't pry into their phones unless there is reasonable cause. And that reasonable cause is not based on some nagging feeling that you have no basis for. That reasonable cause is usually going to be past experiences and genuine concern based on other elements, like maybe people they know that they're closely connected with who are involved in these things, and that comes to light, and there are signs indicating that they're getting involved in certain things like that, in which case it would be permissible. However, having said all of that, a lot of that would apply to when the children are still young, when they haven't yet hit puberty. Once they hit puberty, it's a different ballgame. Once they hit puberty, they are technically adults. And although they live in your house and they're under your charge, they're under your authority, and you have certain rights over them as children, number one, and also as being under your charge in your home, number two, although that is true, they're still adults. And the relationship you have to build with your children at that age should be a relationship of love and trust where they understand that they are responsible for their actions maybe they're looking at something they shouldn't be but i i would venture to i guess that prying into the phone to expose that would create perhaps a greater harm than it would be for them to do that and make toba but you know it all depends It's one thing if they're watching something you don't want them to watch, they shouldn't be watching. It's another thing if it's hard drug use or other things like that that are dangerous to them and others, or self-harm and the like. So you do have to look at it on a case-by-case basis, but the default is that it should be avoided unless there is clear danger. Like I said, self-harm, drugs, clearly illicit behaviors, and that evidence should be based on external proofs, prior experiences, uh, things going on with their friend group that are also clear-cut, indicating that they might be involved. Otherwise, it's better to just instill taqwa through love, care, concern, du'a, building trust, because you can spy on their phone as much as you want now while they're over in, under your roof. But what are they going to do when they leave your house? Are they going to be the type of people who pray because you're nagging them to death to pray, and as soon as they leave the house, they, be- they leave the prayer altogether? Or, are you trying to raise someone who becomes self-directed in their ibadah? So they're praying when it's the time of the prayer, and you didn't have to remind them. That becomes something of a litmus test, doesn't it, for our young teens? There's those years where you feel like you have to remind them for every single thing. Eat with your right hand. Go make wudu, go pray salah. For every single salah you have to remind them. But then there comes a point where inshallah you see that the time of prayer comes in and they go on their own self-directed to make wudu and pray and you didn't even tell them. That is when you know that it's having an impact and when they get to that stage inshallah, they go on, they leave your house and they go on in their life and they maintain some marakum of taqwa inshallah ta'ala. But that, I believe, is harmed when they feel that they're being spied on 24-7. Like There's a harm in letting certain things happen under your nose that you're not aware of that you think might be going on in the phone. But it could be a greater harm if you intrude and spy to the point where it ruptures the relationship. So that's what I invite you to consider. And I don't think there is a blanket answer for every parent In their circumstances, each parent has their own specific set of circumstances where they either should or should not pry into the phone. There should be no blanket answer that applies to every single person. It all depends on the situation. So that's the general answer. Wallahu subhanahu wa ta'ala, a'lam. Okay, next question. It says Assalamu alaikum. What parts of your body are you allowed to trim slash shave for men and women? In particular, around the eyebrows and body hair. So uh, this is a really detailed question, or rather the answer is really detailed. So what I'll try to do is answer the question particularly concerning the issue of the eyebrows. As for body hair, there are different details between men and women. But this is the one, since they asked about it uh, in parentheses, I'll speak about the issue of the eyebrows. Uh, it's a really common practice today where people are you know, plucking their eyebrows, cutting their eyebrows, trimming the eyebrows. And people want to know, well, what is the Islamic ruling concerning this? Is it prohibited? And if it is not, what are the guidelines? Now, our starting point for this issue is a single hadith. And that hadith comes by way of Sayyiduna Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu ta'ala anhu. He is mentioned in the hadith that he cursed women who get tattoos, who pluck hair, or create gaps between their front teeth, which he called tagheeru khalqillah, changing the creation of Allah. So this is a famous hadith, and... It has been the subject of much commentary among the shurrah and the fuqaha. And we want to explore that just a little bit. So here, uh, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu is using a particular word that we call uh, nims or tanmils or nimaas. It comes from noon, Mim, saad, nims. So nims is described as the plucking of the eyebrow hairs out or plucking the hairs out as opposed to cutting them or shaving them. So, most of the ulama say that nims as a word applies to plucking any hair out from the face. A minority say it applies only to plucking the eyebrow hairs out. Now, Imam al Nawawi rahimahullah ta'ala he says that this hadith uh, does not Restrict the prohibition to plucking only, rather, it would be prohibited if it was done with scissors, with cutting, trimming, shaving, etc. So, what matters here in the hadith is not the tool by which the hairs are removed, but it is the actual removal of the facial hairs. So, in Islamic jurisprudence, there's a small minority of ulama who believe that this prohibition, this tahrim, is mutlaq, it's absolute. Meaning it applies to every single hair on the face no matter where it may grow, men or women, which would mean by that interpretation, if the woman had a mustache, it would be haram for her to cut it. That's a minority view. But the overwhelming majority of the fuqaha qualify this hadith. So they say, this hadith is عام, is general, but it is is مَخْصُوص it's qualified by another narration. This other narration is found in the masannaf of Imam Abdul Razak, San'ani. He relates a hadith in which someone asked Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu anha whether it is allowed for a person to remove facial hair in order to beautify herself for her husband. So the woman wants to know. Can I remove the stray hairs that grow here and there on my face to beautify myself for my husband? And Sayyidina Aisha anha replied, Remove what is unsightly and adorn yourself for your husband. So this athar from Sayyidina Aisha is understood to qualify the open-ended, absolute, general narration from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. And it's because of this narration of Sayyidah Aisha that in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, and Imam al-Shafi'i, they say that if a woman has facial hair, she is allowed to remove it. In fact, they say it is mustahab to remove it to adorn herself for her husband. This is in the Hanafi and Shafi'i schools. Imam ibn Abidin, rahimahullah, He states that if she grows some hair on her face, which is a cause for her husband disliking her, then the prohibition of removing hair seems far-fetched. And it's far-fetched to think that in that case it's still haram for her to do so. He says that is because the self-beautification of the woman for her husband is recommended for the sake of chastity, of maintaining the Ties between the husband and the wife. Likewise, Imam al-Shafi'i from the Shafi'i school, Imam al says that if a woman grows facial hair uh, below her chin, below her lip, or on her lip, uh, upper lip, she is mustathna, she is accepted, she's an exception to the general prohibition, and therefore it is permitted, rather recommended, for her to remove those hairs. So that's speaking about removing the hairs in general, and whether it is absolute or whether it's qualified. When it comes to the issue of plucking the hairs of the eyebrows, we find different opinions within the four schools. Uh, and we'll start right out the gate and say that some of the schools are extremely strict, almost to the point of absolute prohibition, whereas other schools are extremely lenient, such as the school of Imam Madik, which They're the most lenient school in this matter. So we start in chronological order. What is the first madhahab historically? Wrong. Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah. Imam Abu Hanifa came before Imam Shafi. So in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa, we have a statement from the commentary of al-Imam al Tahtawi. He says, An-Nimas, that word, is removing facial hair with tweezers. He says, some of the shurrah, the commentators on Imam al-Sayyuti, jami al sahir say that Nimas is specific to the removal of eyebrow hair in order to make them thin and balanced out and equal in size to each other. He says, this act is unlawful. Okay? it is permitted however it is permitted however to remove hair dye it red beautify it and adorn it with the permission of her husband she can do that since it is a kind of permissible uh, zina a permissible adornment so in the Hanafi school generally if there's permission for the husband it's okay Likewise, in al fatawa al hindiya it says there's nothing wrong with removing the hair of the eyebrows and face as long as one does not resemble an effeminate person. Now that must seems to be speaking to men, doesn't it? Right? So that is the Hanafi school in general. We come to the next school. Who's after Imam Abu Hanifa? Imam Malik. Imam Malik is after Imam Abu Hanifa. Then comes Imam Shafi'i, and then Imam Ahmad. So the Madiki school, I said it's the most lenient in this issue. Al-Imam Al-Nafrawi, he mentions in Al-Fawakih Al-Dawani, a commentary on the Risala of Imam Ibn Abi Zayd Al-Qairawani. He says, at tanmils that plucking, removal of the hair, is to pluck the eyebrow hairs so that it becomes fine and beautiful. He says, However, the permissibility of removing hair from the eyebrows and face has been narrated from Aisha radiallahu anha. And it conforms to what was mentioned previously, that the Mu'tamad, the relied upon position in the school of Imam Madik, the relied upon position, is the permissibility of a woman removing all her hair with the exception of the hair of her head. So in the Madaki school, technically speaking, if she wanted to, she could remove all her eyebrows, all her eyelashes, remove any other hairs here. As long as she's not shaving off her head, everything else would be permissible because of the hadith of Sayyidina Aisha. He says, As for the prohibition that is mentioned in the hadith, it is understood to be for a woman who has been prohibited from adorning herself, such as a woman whose husband has passed away, so she's in her idda, or a woman whose husband is mafqood, he's lost, he's mis- missing in action for months on end. He says this can't be countered by claiming that it is a kind of change in the creation of Allah, because not every form of change is prohibited. Right? Just because you shave something doesn't mean you're changing the creation of Allah, he says. Because, he says, do you not consider that the characteristics of the fitra, the khisal al-fitrah, in the hadith mentions circumcision. It mentions cutting the nails. It mentions cutting the hair. It mentions shaving the armpit hair, and so on. And other actions like this, and all of that is removing something from the body. So... If those are qualities of fitrah, how can you say that just plucking or removing some hairs is changing the creation of Allah in and of itself? That's what he says. Uh, in the Shafi'i school, we have Imam Shamsuddin al ramli who says that tanmis, which is to remove the facial hair and eyebrows for adornment, is unlawful. Unlawful. However, if the husband or the master of a slave girl gives her permission, then it is permitted because he has an interest in her adorning herself for him. So this is mentioned by Imam Ar-Ramli. Same thing is said by Imam al-Khatib al-Shirbini, rahimahullah. he says in Mughni al-Muhtaj, uh, a very relied upon Shafi'i work, he says that the, illa, the reason for the prohibition of plucking and removing the hairs, in the hadith of Ibn Mas'ud, is deception. It is deception. Such as an unmarried lady deceiving a, a prospective husband. So maybe she has a massive unibrow and she doesn't want him to know that. So before she meets with him for the first time, she plucks, 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 trims, 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 and shapes it up in a certain way to give him the impression that this is actually how she looks without any adornment. And you see how that can apply to excessive makeup as well, if she's meeting someone for the first time. And this is why sisters, for those of you who are listening, sisters, If you are in a discussion or you're looking to get married and that person, you haven't met them yet and you're going to meet them, I know this is going to sound very difficult to do, you need to meet them without makeup on. They need to know what you actually look like. And if you are communicating with people online or or distance or if your family are talking to people back home and sharing your picture, your picture should not be one that has you looking all dolled up, which is not how you actually look when you wake up in the morning. You need to send a picture that shows them what you actually look like. And alhamdulillah, that's good. And you have to be mindful of this because it, is, it can be a possible deception if you're not careful. He says if the illa of deception is absent and the husband gives permission, she can do this, it's permissible. Uh, in the hanbali school, the, there's two views. The standard reliable view is that it is unrestrictedly haram. This is the strictest madhab in this issue. Unrestrictedly haram. That's the main relied upon view in the hanbali school. There is a second view in the school which says it is permissible if it is A, with the request of the husband to do so for adornment, uh, B, when there's no deception involved, and one and see when it's not imitating uh, alfasiqat, you know, immoral, loose women. So if it's if it's something particular or in a certain style particular to a certain type of people known for degeneracy, then one would avoid trying to, to imitate them in that way. So, uh, in conclusion, it is permitted for a woman to remove facial hair besides the eyebrows whether she's married or unmarried, especially if she grows hair on her upper lip, below her lip, on her chin, around her face like that, she can remove them, married or unmarried. As for eyebrows, if there is what one may call a defect, or they're unsightly, meaning they're growing in odd ways, it's a massive unibrow and it's all over the place, meaning it's, it's not the norm, right? then it will be permitted for her to trim them, to bring them in line with the norm. And that norm is described as what is norm in society. So if they're very thick and bushy, if there's a massive unibrow, if they're growing all over the place, then she will be allowed to trim them. So this is allowed for married women and unmarried women. It's allowed for men as well. And the reason why it's allowed is because there is a haja. There's a genuine need to do so Because the sharia allows us to bring back Into normal, quote-unquote normality A standard normality Anything that has gone outside of that normality So if a person has a massive unibrow And is going all up here Okay That is not within the bounds of normality So one would be allowed to bring it more in line with what is normal. Nothing wrong with that at all. And what is considered abnormal here is by sound people in society. Ahlul Fadal, you know, generally upright people in society. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's more details here. Uh, As we said, if it is done in a way that imitates specific categories of immoral people in society who do it in a certain style, that will be forbidden. But if there's a genuine need or it's for adornment for one's husband and with his permission, that's fine. If it's facial hair elsewhere, then that's fine as well. According to the majority, Wallahu subhanahu wa ta'ala, a'la wa'alam. All right. Okay. We got two more. Yeah, two more questions here. So that was a fiqh question. Uh, Number four is also a fiqh question. And that question pertains to salat. on an airplane. The questioner says, Assalamu alaikum. Alaykum as-salam. Are we required to pray in the airplane while traveling? If yes, what are the requirements for an acceptable prayer? Can we pray while sitting on our seats? How to determine the qibla? Do we need to repeat the salah after landing? Let's see who is paying attention. How many questions are in this one question? There are five questions. Yeah. Are we required to play in the airplane while traveling? Number one. If yes, what are the requirements for an acceptable prayer? Number two. Can we pray while sitting on our seats? Number three. How to determine the Qibla? Number four. Do we need to repeat the Salah after landing? Number five. So there's five questions all wrapped up in one. So we have five questions tonight, but if we use this one, we have nine. Yeah. So I'll give you the short answer, and then a little bit of detail, not as much as the eyebrow-plucking question. The short answer is that if you are traveling on an airplane, and it is the time for prayer, and if you are able to pray your salat, while standing and making the normal rukur and sujood as you do on the ground, then you must do so. But as you all know, very few airlines allow you to do that. And in fact, even the airlines of quote unquote Muslim majority countries don't tend to have adequate spaces for that. I don't know about every single airline, but many of them I know they don't really have space for that. And if you get up in the middle of the aisle and start praying, it creates a huge problem, right? So if you're able to do it, then you have to. But most of the time, you can't. So what do you do? You offer your salat in your seat. Even if you are unable to face the qibla, you still offer it in your seat. Why? Because of what the scholars call حُرْمَةُ Because of the sacredness of the time. Allah Ta'ala says in the Qur'an that the prayers have been made for the believers in prescribed times. هِتَابِ This means that there is a sacredness to the time. And even if you are lacking in all of the prerequisites for a valid salat that you are unable to attain, For the sake of the hurma, the sacredness of the time, you still offer the prayer. However, because you are missing conditions, when you arrive at your destination, or when you arrive at some layover and you have enough time, you pray those over again as qada, Or you pray them again if you still have time, if it's still in the time. You pray them over again. This is the short and fast answer. So... Try to pray at home or at the airport before you're bored if you can. If you can't, if you can pray in the airplane properly, then do so. If you can't, pray in your seat. And when you arrive at your destination, repeat those prayers. uh, Make qadah. So you're offering the prayer in the plane, even though it's lacking in the conditions, due to hurmatul waqt, the sacredness of the time. And the reason why we say this is that Uh, at least in the Madiki and Shafri schools, one of the conditions of the prayer is what is called istiqrar, which means settlement, Uh, being settled, like firmly fixed in a place. Now the fuqaha talked about this condition of istiqrar, being settled as a condition, well before airplanes were even invented. So when they were talking about it in the old books of fiqh, they gave different scenarios. As examples of invalid prayers, they would say, for example, if let's suppose um, let's suppose two people come up to you and they both lift you up and they're hoisting you up and they're walking with you or just standing there holding you up in the air. You're not attached to the ground, are you? So you don't have istiqrar. You can't pray like this. Likewise, they say, if the person in, especially in the olden days If the person is traveling on a camel And they are seated inside of the hawdaj, right, the, the carrier, the carriage If they're inside of that They don't have istiqrar right? They're just up there They can't offer a salat like this However There's details Because we're talking about fard prayer And not sunnah prayer For the sunnah prayers There's some flexibility here Right You could pray on top of a camel. You could pray in an airplane seated on both of them, provided two things are in place. Number one, they are sunnah prayers. They're not fart. And number two, you begin that prayer while facing the qibla. So if you're riding on a camel, this applies to cars too. So let's say you want to pray sunnahs. And you have a long road trip, 500 miles. You want to pray nafil while driving. You could, or, you, or you're the passenger. I don't know if you should pray while you're driving. Or a train, right? What do you do? If the car is facing the qibla, and you're in the passenger seat facing the qibla, you can utter Allahu Akbar and begin the prayer. After that takbir, it doesn't matter if the car goes this way or that way away from the qibla. You initiate the prayer in the qibla. So you're in some, some mode of transport, a carriage and you're no longer facing the Qibla, but you started the prayer in it. That would be permissible for Sunnah prayers. That would not be permissible for Fard. And this applies to people here. It's very relevant, because I've had a number of people ask about this. They were under the impression that if it's cold outside, or they don't feel safe while they're at the shopping mall, parking lot, they can pray their Salat while sitting in their car. That's not valid is not valid, it's lacking the conditions for the fard prayer. So if a person is traveling, and they can't face the qibla, they can't find a place to pray normal prayer, and they're afraid the time of the prayer is going to exit before they land, they still pray, because of hurmatul waqt, the sacredness of the time. Once they arrive at their destination, they do qada, they do the makeup for that prayer. And they're not sinful for this They tried their best in the moment When the prayer was obligatory To establish the fard But they lacked the conditions And couldn't acquire the conditions Even though they would have if they could So they established the prayer Due to the sacredness of the time And then they made it up when they get back When they get to their destination So uh, that's the short answer Inshallah ta'ala Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam okay, The last question comes all the way from Norway and this question says what should aspiring students of knowledge do when there is a lack of trustable sheikhs in their area okay so the prophet sallallahu says in the famous hadith Seeking knowledge is obligatory on every individual Muslim. So it is an obligation. But we have to clarify a couple of things here. When the Prophet wasallam says that seeking knowledge is an obligation on every Muslim, he is referring to what kind of knowledge? I'll give you a hint. We, 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 we cover it every Friday night. So when the Prophet ﷺ says That seeking knowledge is obligatory On every single Muslim He is speaking about Individually obligatory knowledge Farudain knowledge He is not speaking about fard kifayi Knowledge, that is an obligation On the community as a whole But not on every single individual right? That may be obligatory for some But not for all So uh, going back to this question If the questioner means by talabul ilm seeking knowledge if they mean seeking obligatory fard knowledge then they would have to use any possible means they can to seek that knowledge even if they have to travel right even the ulama even mentioned that if a if a woman was Uh, in need of learning fardain knowledge and she had no teacher in her area no means of doing this doesn't really exist anymore by the way Uh, and the parents never gave permission for her to leave the house she would not be sinful if she left the house to go find qualified scholarship and learn her fardain now that is what the fuqaha have said in the past it doesn't really apply anymore because you can learn it online you can learn it online if you know where to look right so that's not an excuse to go on a vacation package to Turkey for talib ilm you know, uh, doing your thing out there with your friends without your parents' permission. That's not what we're talking about here. So if the questioner means seeking the Ain knowledge, you have to use any means at your disposal to learn it, even if you have to travel. If you can learn it online through reliable teachers and programs, that would be sufficient for you because it doesn't take a lifetime to learn Fardain knowledge. In fact, with our Fardain program, we're really going beyond Fardain in many ways. That's why it's gone on for well over a year. If we were to condense it, we could probably cover it in a month. But we want to make sure that everything is covered. Now, the questioner might not mean Fardain knowledge. He, he might mean when he says aspiring students of knowledge, he might mean someone who aspires to seek Islamic knowledge at a higher level. So if they mean it this way, to seek it in a structured manner, learning uh, the ulum al-ala and the ulum al-maqasid, the the objective core sciences and the ancillary sciences, the different ulum you have to know if you're going to be an aspiring scholar, talib ilm if you're asking about that level of study Then you can still learn online But of course it's, it's kind of like tayammum in the absence of water It's not ideal But you can still learn online If you don't have qualified teachers in your own locality Now that's less than ideal as I said So what I would suggest to this questioner And I don't know who it is or their circumstances But I, I would suggest in general that they find a way in their own limited circumstances to learn from qualified teachers online and to build their foundations up until the point when they are able to travel outside of the locality to sit in person with qualified scholars. Now, the questioner might not be able to do that right now. That's fine. But if that is their goal, then I would say to them, do not let the lack of trustworthy teachers in your locality prevent you from doing what you can do right now in building yourself up for that time when you can go somewhere else. So what do I mean by that, to be more precise? I mean two things in particular. If a person aspires to study Islam on a deeper level, they want to go sit with mashayikh and ulama and really go to the next level in their studies and They don't have teachers in the locality. They should make a plan for when they will go. And in the meantime, there are two key things they have to focus on. Memorization of the Qur'an and studying the Arabic language. I can't tell you how many people say, I can't wait. You know, I'm saving up and preparing. I'm going to go, you know, study Al-Azhar. I'm going to study at this university or this madrasa, this place or that place. I just need a year or two to get my funds together and I'm going to go. And when you ask them, okay, mashallah, are you... In the meantime, are you memorizing Quran? Are you studying Arabic? They say, no, I'll do all that when I get over there. That is not the attitude of a talib or ilm. If you are truly going to seek knowledge, it requires sacrifice. It requires Pain and suffering and There's difficulty involved It is better to do as much as you can now So that you Can advance more quickly When you arrive at that University, that madrasa or wherever And that is in learning the Arabic language And memorizing as much Of the Quran as possible If not the entire Quran So if you do those two things While connecting with Online teachers And building those relationships by the time you are able to go outside of your locality, whether it's overseas in another country or somewhere else in your own country, you will have built a very strong foundation that will aid you and speed up your learning when you get to where you're trying to go. But if you aspire to go to this university or this madrasa in one year's time, two years' time, five years' time, But in all the years prior to it You're not memorizing Quran or studying Arabic You're really deceiving yourself Because you don't learn Arabic by osmosis You don't go to this Arab country And you know I'm soaking up the Arabic through the sand You know It doesn't happen that way Yeah, It doesn't come this way It comes with struggle Better to do it now And make it easier when you get over there Uh, Wallahu ta'ala a'lam and khair, so this is, these are all the questions for this month insha'Allah. And just as a reminder to whoever is watching this, insha'Allah if you could send your questions at the link. And insha'Allah we'll try to address them in the next month or if not in the next month. We have still a number of questions that are unanswered in the list but I can always take more insha'Allah. والله ورسوله أعلم وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم